morning. Welcome to Asante Church. My name is Alex Dennis. I get to be one of the pastors here at Asante, and man, I am fired up when I look around this room this morning. There are so many new people. If it is your first time here this morning, uh, as you have heard already, we do not normally park in the back parking lot. Um, we, we got a surprise this morning, and they showed up and started resealing the place we normally park. So thank you for your flexibility this morning. I really think that the church will never be dangerous in the times we need to be dangerous for the Lord if we can't figure out how to park in the same direction, okay? So as we leave here today, let's not get revelations dangerous in how we pull out of here all Mad Max style, but uh, you know, the Holy Spirit brings self-control. Let's use that on the way out this morning. Those of you that know me, you know that I am an artist. You know that I, I love to paint. I paint myself. Um, if you have seen any of my artwork, it does not look like um, really anything. It just looks like colors that hit a canvas, probably at a high rate of speed, uh, and then were attacked by an object that wasn't a paintbrush. I love art. I love, especially I love expressionistic art. And so this morning, I want to walk you through a little bit of art history to kind of explain how we get from the more traditional, subjectual, realistic era of realism type art to the era of abstract expressionism. And then I want to do my best to tie that to how Jesus takes the law fulfills the law, and brings in the new covenant, brings in a new way, takes religion, gets rid of it, and instates relationship with us. And so this first painting that I have for you here today, if you've ever seen it, let's make some noise like, you know, your favorite football team just scored. It is called The Gleaners. The Gleaners. And I paid minimal attention in humanities and art appreciation in college, but I know how to use the Google, and the Google told me that Jean-Francois Millet painted this painting. Now, maybe that's Millet. I don't speak French. Uh, when Google Translator translated it for me, it was Jean-Francois Millet. <laughs> so, I don't know. Uh, I'm not, I know they say be concerned about AI, but so far I'm not. Uh, they, they're not fooling me. Now, with this painting right here, what makes it so amazing is the amount of realism. This is one of the most known paintings in the whole uh, genre of realism type artwork. And when you look at this, if you're far enough away, and if you lived in like the 1800s when this was painted, you're thinking this is a picture that someone took on a camera. Now, they wouldn't have known what a camera actually is. Only we do. So this looks like maybe it was taken on the first, second, third generation of iPhones ever. But for its time, it was absolutely incredible. Now, what is realism? Yes, it is very realistic in what they are painting. They take a picture of something in action and a normal everyday activity, and they paint it. And then that goes to portray a message. Now, there's one problem with this painting. Do you see it? I think everybody here sees it. All right, close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. Count backwards from three and a half. Three and a half. Three, two, one. Open your eyes. Look at that painting. Did you see what happened? Nothing happened. You, it's the exact same painting. Okay, we'll, we'll go to the next one. I know probably all of you have seen this one. It's called Nighthawks. It is by Edward Hooper. Now, this is uh, also a very well-known painting in the realism era. This is a painting about people that like to stay up too late because they drink coffee, okay? <laughs> Nicotine may be involved in this painting. So, <clears throat> now close your eyes. We'll count down from four this time, four. Three, two, one, open them. What do you see? The exact same picture. 
does it invoke the exact same feeling that it did the first time you saw it? Probably. This picture is always going to be this picture. The way that this picture was created is always going to have the same amount of work that was put into it. And that's kind of the same for every painting, but there probably wasn't a lot of heartfelt passion that went into this bad boy right here. Now, there is something that needs to be communicated from it. That's why the artist took his time or her time. Edward, no, it wasn't her. I know Edward. That's a boy name, okay? Edward Hooper took his time on this, but it will always be just this. And so if you really love this, then this is always going to be really good for you. Let's introduce some people now that kind of shook things up, some people that made people really nervous, um, not just because of their painting, but this guy, his name is Van Gogh, and he decided it would be a solid idea to cut his ear off so uh, let's hit that next. Boom. This is a self-portrait of Van Gogh after he cut his ear off to um, so graciously gift it to a lady of the night who he was madly in love with. Now, now art starts getting wild. Now people are starting to get nervous. Now these people in this realism genre are thinking, okay, I spent a hundred thousand hours on this one painting to make it look exactly how it needed to look. And then this guy over here named Van Gogh fell in love with a wild woman, cut his ear off, and then he only used a medium-sized brush the entire painting. And that doesn't even look like a human. Well, it kind of does. But if you're looking for hyper-realism, that doesn't, it looks like a kindergartner got really creative and drank too much Kool-Aid one day and sat down and said, I'm going to paint myself. Now, it gets weirder than that because there was a guy I believe before Van Gogh, we'll go to this next painting. This is called The Poet, and this is from who? Does anybody know? Pablo Picasso. Now, he introduces this style of art called Cubism, and this style of art is the same, well, it's not the same, it's one subject from all different aspects. Now, all of a sudden, we're taking one thing and we're seeing it from so many different approaches. Now, People that thought Van Gogh was weird are probably looking at Picasso like, dude, I can't even probably have a conversation with you. There was a period in Pablo Picasso's life where he was running low on money, and he had a lot of paint, and so he ate a lot of paint. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Uh, it gets weirder. Uh, this last guy, um, look, just so you know, oh, spoiler alert, Jackson Pollock right here. Number 31 is this painting. This is where I live. This is my realm. When I look at this, I have emotions that take over me. I look at this and I think, man, now that is art. Anybody else in here, you're like, yeah, that's me. Cool. It's good to be alone on this. Yeah. Um, you know, I read in my Bible to be holy means to be set apart. So that's good. I'm feeling set apart right now. This right here has movement. This right here has passion. This right here has emotion. I think when we look at the law, the old covenant, what we see is always what we're going to get. Live by this. Do this. Don't do that. Definitely don't do that. Then when you have the Pharisees step up to the plate and you have this new idea of apostate Judaism, which is they are now taking man's law and bringing it up to God's law, now this is hyper-realism. Now it's not just what you see is what you get, but you need to stand on your left leg and pick your right leg up and hold your left hand in the air and tilt your head to the side and look at this, and that's exactly how you need to see it. They are adding rules on top of God's rules and saying that they are equal. There is an issue with that. 
and the issue today is that Jesus did not come to bring more traditional art. What Jesus came to bring into the world was abstract. Now, when you look at a painting like this, there is a man by the name of Wolfgang Pelin, and he says, when looking at traditional art, paintings no longer represent. When you look at a painting like this, paintings no longer represent. Today, it is the role of the painting to look at the spectator and to ask him, what do you represent? Now, traditional art is always going to say, hey, find exactly what I want you to find in this. Expressionistic, abstract, expressionistic art is going to say, hey, what do you find in me? And then apparently, according to Wolfgang, it's going to look deep into your soul and say, hey, what are you all about? That's exactly what Jesus is doing in a very non-artistic sort of way. Jesus isn't whipping out a paintbrush or any mediums or supplies and trying to craft a beautiful painting on a canvas, but what he is doing is that exact same thing with the law and fulfilling the law and with the new covenant and with relationship and with the gospel. And now it isn't look at the law and do exactly as you see as you see and are told, not just what God says, but what man says. What Jesus is saying is, now I'm bringing relationship, I'm bringing the gospel, and I'm going to look at you, and that is going to ask you, what is it that you represent? Jesus came to bring the abstract. Our big idea today in bringing the abstract is that Jesus came to bring relationship, not religion. Jesus came to challenge a mindset that was stuck in its way, not to challenge tradition. Because we see that Jesus honors tradition. We see that Jesus not only honors tradition, but he perfectly fulfills tradition in his life throughout the Gospels. And not only that, but in doing so, in fulfilling it, he sets us free from it, and he instates the heart behind the tradition. Jesus sets things right, but Jesus is met with opposition from the Pharisees who are adding on top of the law that he came to fulfill. So what is it that Jesus came to bring? First point this morning, Jesus came to bring joy. Jesus came to bring joy. Mark chapter 2 verses 18 through 22 is what we'll be covering today, but here in this point it is 18 through 20. Mark writes, as Peter says, John, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came to him and said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, they don't fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. The first thing we see as we read these two verses is that the hungry were not happy, okay? People that were having to fast are not happy with the people that are getting to sit at the table full of carbohydrates. This is a Snickers commercial. You have a bunch of Danny DeVitos coming up to Jesus, really grumpy, asking, hey, what is going on here? And so the Pharisees are demanding an answer from Jesus. Why do these people fast in Jesus? Why do your people not? Now, we need to know that the context is these people fasted regularly. The disciples of John would have fasted in anticipation for the coming Messiah. 
Now the Pharisees, they would take it up a notch. They would fast for all of the Old Testament ritual fast. They would also fast on top of that Mondays and Thursdays, and they would fast for further consecration, better piety, better standing, looking like they were more holy, having it all together. These guys were only supposed to, only required to, all of Israel only ever required to fast for one day, for one day of the year, and that was the Day of Atonement. So everything they were doing on top of that was just extra, extra, extra. These guys were trying to have it all together. So now we have to ask the question, okay, they were fasting. So for some of us, maybe you grew up in church, you know what fasting is. For others, maybe you didn't. And maybe that's a big question mark over your head right now. And so let's pan out. Let's say, what is fasting? Fasting is physically abstaining from food to experience the goodness of the giver of the gift, to experience the goodness of the giver of that food. Fasting, the reason why we fast is because we say, God, I treasure you more than I treasure my belly. God, I want to experience you more than I want to experience whatever delicious meal I could have prepared and put in front of me. Fasting, for us as believers today, is a spiritual discipline. It is something that we practice just like giving, just like praying, just like studying God's word, just like serving his people and people that aren't his people yet. And fasting is assumed. Look at this. When we read Matthew 6, 6 through 18, this is Jesus, and Jesus says this. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces They disfigure their faces, that their faces may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So fasting now for myself, for you, if you have put your faith in Jesus, is something that we do just like praying, just like worshiping, just like trusting our finances to God. Now we trust our caloric deficit to God for him to use this lack of meal in our lives so that we can sit at the table with him, so that we can see him go to work in our lives. A lot of times we will combine fasting, not eating, abstaining from food, with prayer. An amazing pastor by the name of John Piper says this, that the hunger pangs of fasting are God's trumpet call to prayer. So when we want to see God move in our lives, when we want to experience more of him, we practice the spiritual discipline of fasting. Now the Pharisees, they were using it completely differently. These guys were using it in the wrong manner. You see, they were fasting as a means of earning God's favor for their will. They weren't fasting in order to have God's will revealed to them and then receive the strength to their go after God's will. What they were fasting for was for freedom. They were fasting for freedom from the oppression of Rome. And so when we take this into consideration now, all of this is kind of starting to fall into place. Well, Jesus, the Pharisees are fasting. Jesus, the disciples of John the Baptist are fasting, but Jesus, your disciples are not fasting. 
Does that mean that you don't care that we are currently oppressed by Rome? We are fasting so that we can experience freedom. We are fasting because we want God to move. And are they doing it for the right reason? Yes. Are they doing it with the wrong heart behind the right reason, which is to twist God's arm to do what they think their will is and what they think needs to be done? Yes. Because once again, we embrace God's will over what we think needs to happen. The whole time they're confronting Jesus on this, they're calling out the same person that would actually deliver them. Not deliver them from Rome, that would happen later on, but the person that would deliver them from what they need the most, and that was their sin. Now, Jesus kind of explains all of this in his answer in saying that he is the bridegroom. You ever notice people ask Jesus a question a lot in Scripture, and he's not like, oh, yeah, well, hey, it's A, B, and C. Jesus is asked a question, and then he says, well, let me tell you this story, and now let me tell you this story, and now let me tell you this story. And so it all gets a little confusing, especially if we don't know exactly what was going on in that time and place. And so we break that down a little bit more, and we see that Jesus says that he is the bridegroom. So we see that there is a time for joy. There is a time for celebration. And Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, I am here with my followers. I am the groom. These guys right here are my guests. What we are experiencing right now is a joyous wedding feast. Anybody ever been to a wedding in here? Yeah, okay. That's a lot less people than I thought. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you need more friends. <laughs> Or maybe you're really shy to raise your hand, and I get that too. Man, I think of the weddings I've been to, and they have been so joyous, mostly because they're between two believers that are bringing their lives together, and they're conjoined with God the Father, walking into eternity, and it is a beautiful thing. I think of probably the best wedding I ever went to was our associate pastor, Jacob's wedding. And I don't know how it started. I think maybe I got really excited and started a dance party, and we had a dance-off in the middle. And at the end of this dance party, I feel like if there were trophies, I would have gotten a trophy because I did the worm. And I don't know, maybe I just got real excited and, and can't recall everything because I blacked out. But uh, no one danced after that because how can, you, how can you get any better than all of this doing all of this across the ground, Okay. It was a joyous celebration. Um, actually, the, uh, there was a wedding guest at Jacob's wedding that came up to me afterward. He said, hey, pastor, just really appreciate. Uh, that was a very gospel-centered ceremony. I just really appreciate that. And uh, by the way, I've never seen the officiant uh, also be the best dancer um, at, the, at the reception. And so that was weird. But also, I realized that there was not any alcohol here tonight. And so the fact that all of that just happened sober kind of makes me a little concerned as well. I was like, hey, man, you know, skills, baby, got that spirit. Let's go. It was a joyous feast. And that's what weddings are supposed to be. Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom. These are my guests. Weddings back then would have lasted five to seven days. This is something that would have taken place for quite a while. And that is important because we need that bit of information coming up. It would have been inappropriate for them to fast at the wedding feast. That's absolutely crazy. 
Man, we spend so much time with the wedding planners and the caterers. And man, do you look, just look at that cake. That cake is going to taste amazing. Nobody fasts at a wedding because a wedding is a time for joy. It is a time for celebration. Our relationships with Jesus, our relationships with Jesus need to be viewed exactly the same. Our relationship with Jesus in his presence is a spiritual banquet. So what does that mean? It means that we should be joyous as believers, no matter what comes against us, no matter how many parking lots need to be resealed, no matter how many times you had to go back and forth and reverse and drive in this back parking lot just to get your car in the right place that hopefully nobody will hit it on the way out or hit you on the way out. No matter what comes against us, no matter how small, no matter how big, we have joy. Why do we have joy? Because we have the presence of Jesus in that moment. Now, it's so much more for us than it was even for the disciples in this situation because now we are believers on the other side of the resurrection. Now that means that sin is dead. Now that means that death is dead. Now that means that the enemy has been defeated and we live and walk out of the victory of King Jesus and that should bring some joy in our lives. And so if you are a believer in here and you're having a problem with joy, then that makes me question, is Jesus inside of you? Are you experiencing the presence of Jesus or are you just going grumpy through life? Like Jesus never died on the cross for you. Like Jesus never rose from the grave for you. Like you never experienced forgiveness of sin. That's enough to make me happy right now. Praise God for what he has done for us. Let us find joy in it. Now, as we find joy, Jesus also says that there will be a time where the bridegroom is taken away. Now, that is not normal. That is not common for this time and place. The bridegroom, he stays with the bride groom party, the wedding party, and they party, and then eventually he goes on because, you know, you have to then go be married. That is not what takes place here. Jesus says that there will be a time where the bridegroom is taken away, and he is taken away, and that is the time to mourn. That is the time to fast, but it is not all the time. When the groom is taken away in our lives, it is because of sin entering into our lives. And when Jesus says this, this is really big because this is the first time in the, in the entire gospel of Mark that we see Jesus alluding to his death. Now, Jesus will be taken away. We know that because we know this whole story. We know every spoiler that's about to happen, and he will be put on the cross. And so why do we mourn? especially why do we fast, especially if we're stuck in the answer to this question, it is because of sin. We mourn and we fast over sin. Why? Because it brings distance in between us and in between God. Now, hear me out. I am not saying that it takes your salvation away. That is a gift that is given to you that can never be removed or taken away from you. But when sin enters into our life, it drives a wedge between us. It drives a wedge between the other people in our lives, and it drives a wedge between us and God. But here's the thing. We mourn for a time because our mourning over our sin should lead to our repenting. Our repenting then leads to God forgiving, and then God forgiving leads us right back into joyous celebration. So the sin in your life, mourn it. Mourn it because it puts distance between you and the Father. But then turn to Jesus in it. Identify it 
and then say, Jesus, this is my sin. This is what I need forgiveness for. I need you to take this out of my life. I need you to wash my feet. Make me clean, just like you did Peter. And then put me back in right relationship with God the Father. Give me your mercy. Give me your grace. And let us move forward and continue to celebrate. So the question, the question that the Pharisee asks isn't why didn't Jesus fast? Why didn't Jesus' disciples fast? But the question that the Pharisees kind of messed up on is, why weren't they celebrating? It wasn't a question of fasting. Now this is a question of celebration. These Pharisees, they were presented with the Messiah. They were presented with the gospel. And what they chose was religion over the gospel. And that is exactly what we have to be careful of. Because religion versus the gospel, religion will always condemn, and the gospel will always set you free. Religion, religion will say, obey and be accepted. But the gospel will say, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Religion will say that I am fear-based. But the gospel, the gospel is joy-based. Religion will always say, it will never be enough. But the gospel, and through the work of Jesus on the cross, the gospel says, I am enough. I'm enough to die for. Religion, religion, we work for approval. In the gospel, we work from approval. Religion is all about the rules, and the gospel is all about relationships. And so the same question could be asked for for us of our lives. Are we finding joy in Jesus' presence? Or are we out in religiousville trying to fill our lives with works and everything else so that we could earn it and we're actually spending time in mourning and in fasting when we don't need to be? Are we running to religion to save us, which can never save us, or are we running to the gospel to save us, which was the only thing that was ever designed to save us? Second and final point this morning, Jesus came to make things new. Jesus came to make things new. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. What Jesus is saying here is old religion, old tradition, especially tradition that has been added on top of by all these man-made rules. This old way needs to be discarded. We see that in verse 21. He is saying that trying to patch this old religion of apostate, now apostate Judaism with the gospel is absolutely foolish because the old way has run its course. It is worn out. What he's saying is when you try to add the gospel to Judaism, it is only going to make a small tear Worse, the gospel was never meant to be something that you just patch on top of something else, and then that old thing is now usable again. The gospel isn't just a patch that you put on an old robe. 
that has already run its use. The gospel is a new robe that we pick up and we put on, and it's supposed to be something new entirely. The gospel is not a, an addition. The gospel is the replacement. That doesn't mean that the old way is bad. It just means that the old way is no longer usable. We see this when the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.1 says, Stop worshiping a shadow of the real thing. The real thing, the gospel, is here, and it is offered in the person and the work of Jesus. And so let us stop worshiping this old thing that can't save you, because this old thing can only condemn you. Now, to summarize in the best way that my silly brain knows how of what the Pharisees were actually doing here, I'm going to have to go back to a movie that came out in 1989. Uh, maybe you've seen it. It's called Weekend at Bernie's. Okay? <laughs> Um, let me just tell you a little bit about Weekend at Bernie's. Office workers Larry and Richard, they alert their insurance mogul boss, Bernie, that somebody is cooking the books. Bernie then owes them big, and so he invites them for Labor Day weekend to his Hampton Beach House mansion. Now, problem is, Bernie dies, okay? This dude spends not only one movie, there's a weekend at Bernie's, too. Don't know if you saw that. Probably not even worth it. Uh, he spends that whole movie dead, too. And so the question for Larry and for Richard is, what are they going to do? Are they going to take Bernie's dead body and report it to the police, or are they going to prop this poor old dead rich man up so that they can continue to squeeze the most that they can out of this situation? That's exactly the same situation that these Pharisees find themselves in. This is what we know. This is what we're comfortable with. This is what we have upheld so well. This is what differentiates us from all the other people in society. So are we going to turn this over to the police, or are we going to keep propping this old dead law up so that we can continue on in our power, so that we can continue on in our status? Now, I just, this is just bonus right here. I just want to take you back to 1989 marketing real quick. Here's the taglines used to uh, promote this movie. Bernie would be the perfect host, except for one small thing, dot, dot, dot. He's dead. Now he's the life of the party. Okay, all right. Second one. Yeah, we're still going. A lively comedy about a guy who isn't. Okay. <laughs> Last one, I promise, the drop-dead comedy of the year. Okay, so the Pharisees, they're doing the same thing that Larry and Richard are doing with poor Uncle Bernie. They are propping him up just like the Pharisees are propping the law up. Now, we see that the law, that the old life, that old religion in verse 22 also can't hold new life. So we're getting away from Uncle Bernie's, and we're going into Jesus's illustration of the wineskins. So this also requires a little explanation, because we have to figure out, okay, well, what is the wineskin? Why are they using these wineskins to hold wine? Um, this whole thing's getting a little crazy. Basically, the wineskin is the skin of a dead goat, and they would take the skin of the dead goat, and they would try to skin it near perfectly so that you could get as much wine in it. Now, I don't know 
the exact process from there. It wasn't a YouTube video I was willing to click on. But they would use the skin of this dead goat, they would tie up one end, and then they would pour the wine in it. Now, why would they use the skin of a dead goat? Because it was elastic. Its elasticity was very strong. And when you poured this wine in there, and then you sealed it, the wine is going to do something. It's going to ferment. And as it ferments, it expands. And so you need it to be stretchy, but you also need it to be strong. Now, here's what would happen if you put new wine into an old wineskin or to an old poor dead goat that was holding wine. Anybody want to drink, by the way, right now? Does this sound, <laughs> this sound appetizing? All right. We're doing... <laughs> Too young. All right. We're going to have communion later. That's with grape juice, and it's not touched any dead goats. When you would put the new wine into the old wineskin or into the old goat skin, basically all of its elasticity, all of its strength was already used up. It was too brittle. It would burst. Both the wine and the wineskin would be lost. And so we see again, new things aren't meant to be added to old things. Jesus, in all of this, Jesus is saying, I am the new cloth. I am the new robe to put on. He's saying, I am the new wine that needs to be put into the new wineskin. I am not an addition. I am not an attachment. I am not an appendage. I cannot be integrated, and I cannot be contained by any pre-existing structures, not even Judaism, because I am going to come. I am going to live a perfect life. I am going to fulfill every single law of the old covenant. I am going to fulfill some of the prophets, and then I will die on the cross being the ultimate sacrifice for you, for your sin, because you can never do any of that perfectly. Now you are saved by grace through faith, by grace alone through faith alone. He is ushering in something new, and that is the gospel. And so once again, these questions need to be reframed, these questions of the Pharisees. Now, it is not will the Pharisees add Jesus's teaching to their long list of traditions and rituals, because that's just adding a new patch to an old garment. Now, the question is, will they lay down what they currently believe and replace it with the gospel? Question number two, it is not will they incorporate Jesus into their old life, because that's just refilling an old container with new wine, and it will break. But the question is, will they become new containers that are solely devoted to the expansion of the gospel in their lives? And if that's the question to the Pharisees, the way that Jesus has reframed all of this, then that is the question for us. Will we lay down any current beliefs in our lives that do not line up to Scripture? Well, what if they line up to tradition? What if they line up to the way my parents brought me up? What if they align with my politics? What if they align to my comfort? What if they align to my lifestyle? The question is the same. If it's not from Jesus, if it's not wholly based around the gospel, and it is something that we are allowing to dictate the course of our lives, holding it up on the same standard as the gospel, are you willing to let that thing go? Because now we have a worship problem. Now we have an idolatry problem. When we place things up on the same level as our King Jesus, we worship it the same whether we like to admit it or not. Will we become new containers 
that hold something new, not a stuck mindset that can get trapped in religion and religiosity and want the same thing week in and week out. But will we be unstuck by the power of the gospel, by the work of Jesus on the cross, by his victory, and live a new life that follows him, that is empowered by him, that is empowered by the Holy Spirit that comes to and dwell within us? Those are the questions that Jesus is asking these Pharisees. This is the table that he has laid out before them as they are talking about fasting. And these are the questions he lays out before us. Are you willing to let go of the old so that you can pick up the new? Because that new, that is me. And that is worth it. So how do we take all of this, leave the church with it today, go to the other parking lot we've never used, not hit anybody, not scratch anybody's doors, and exit this parking lot, take a left, and then a right on to Pat Tillman, and you're home free from there. How do we do that today? Two things, as we are to be the church and display the kingdom. Consider Jesus' presence in your life. Find your joy in it and in nothing else. Find joy in other things. I'm going to rephrase that. But find the most joy in King Jesus. Number two, remove any old garments of religion. I'll add tradition into there. And embrace Jesus' new robe of relationship. He died for us so that we could relate to him so that we could be put back in right relationship with God the Father, so that we could be made clean and stand before him holy and righteous as Jesus took our unrighteousness. It's only through him that relationship can be had. Will we lean into that? Will we live out of that by grace through faith alone? Let's pray.